So over the last few weeks, we've been using some really important metaphors to understand the depths of God's Word. God's Word, of course, is written for each one of us. God's Word is a letter from a father to his children. And so we don't need any mediator to interpret God's Word for us. We can just read the Word and God will speak to us directly by his Spirit. But very often it's helpful to take a kind of interpretive key and use it to, to understand the, the broad scope of Scripture. And over these last few weeks, we've been using two particularly important metaphors to help us understand the broad arc of Scripture. One of them was mentioned just a moment ago, this idea of the journey the journey which is so redolent with images of, of walking with Jesus, of being in his company and, and coming to know him as master and as friend. And then, of course, there are other metaphors that, that help us enormously to understand what it means to be part of God's plan the other metaphor that we looked at particularly just a few weeks ago was this idea of location, that we're in a particular location when we're lost and alienated from God, and God brings us to a new location, indicating to us that we've now been taken from a lost state and brought into a place of being found. And that idea of place or location is Again, a, a really significant metaphor that the Bible uses over and over again to, to uncover what it is that God is doing and what it is that God has done. Over these next two weeks, we'll be looking at the story of the cross. And as we look at the story of the cross, we'll be using these metaphors again. This week, we'll look at the, at the metaphor of the journey. And next week, we'll look at the metaphor of place or location. And as we do that, we will come to understand what it is that God wants to tell us about what it means to be lost and what it means to be found. This week, we're going to look at what it means to be a rebel, what it means to be a rebel with whom God has reconciled himself. What does it mean to be an enemy of God whom God has made peace with? And then next week, we'll look at what it means to be in sin and how God can take that location. So often sin is described as a location, a place of alienation. We'll look at that and we'll come to understand what it means to be delivered from sin and brought into a new place of salvation. To do that, we're going to, of course, read the scriptures. And, and this week, the passage that we're looking at is quite an extensive passage that, that deals with the internal struggles that are going on inside of Pilate. Luke, the writer of this gospel, it's his first volume, remember, of his, his great story of Jesus and the early church. Luke wants to present to Roman ears that what it is that Jesus has been accused of 
was not something that Roman law would have recognized. And in doing that, Luke is wanting to establish before the court of Caesar that the things that Paul is being accused of by the same group of people are also not legitimate charges to be held against Paul and by which he should be convicted. Because at the end of the two-volume piece, as we've noted on a number of occasions, we have Paul awaiting his trial in Rome. And so it's fair to assume that Luke is using these documents as documents for the defense. Now, it's tremendously important that we understand this because when we understand this, we get to, we get to feel the, the fabric, the texture of where Scripture emerged. It's, of course, the Holy Spirit who's inspiring the writers of the New Testament to, to write the documents of the New Testament. But there are reasons why in the heart of every writer that they were stirred by the Spirit to find reasons why in their rational mind they ought to be writing these things down. I doubt that a single person who wrote any document in the New Testament thought that they were writing down inspired holy writ. They were simply writing to friends. They were writing to associates. They were writing to churches. And they were presenting documents for defense to people who perhaps did not understand the story in which they were finding themselves as followers of Jesus. And so here we have Luke saying, Pilate, the representative of, of Roman justice known throughout the world for its even-handedness, though once the even-handedness has been expressed in the guilty verdict, you were really in trouble because Roman justice was, was equal and fair, but brutal in its execution. Here, the representative of Roman justice is weighing the circumstances of Jesus' life. And he's saying over and over again, on four separate occasions, he's trying to set Jesus free. But those that have come to, have come to accuse Jesus, they know the Achilles heel of Pilate. An Achilles heel that will be exposed over and over again in his life. We know from historical documentation outside of the New Testament that eventually his callowness and his shallowness of character meant that Pilate not only lost his job as governor of Judea, but eventually lost his life at the word of Caesar. But here, this man who who is struggling with the terms of, of Roman justice as he looks at Jesus. Here, the Roman governor wants to set him free. And so let's look at the passage that deals with this. And uh, to do that, we'll look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. 
I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The drama is amazing, isn't it? You can feel the crackle and the tension in the air as you, as you read the text. Here, Jesus is condemned not by justice, but by, but by aggression and hatred and envy. Jesus is not condemned by the law, but by people who simply want to see him gone and the threat that he poses to their spiritual headship removed. It's interesting, each of the Gospels brings in this character and each of the Gospels gives us another little piece to the background of the character. They, they all bring in this character, Barabbas. But we don't really know the story of Barabbas, but we know the end point of the story as his life intersects with Jesus. We have two narratives. We have the narrative of a rebel, an insurrectionist, a thief and a murderer who, according to Roman justice, is, is worthy of death. And we have another, Jesus, who is even charged with claiming to be the Son of God in the trial before the high priests, just a few verses before our reading today. So you have the Son of God and Barabbas, which of course in Hebrew means Son of the Father. So we have in the ears of the people who are watching and listening two stories that intersect. The Son of God and the Son of the Father. Who will go free? And who will die? There's been a journey for each one of these men 
a journey that began with temptation. Jesus steps into the fray. He's been filled with the Spirit and affirmed by the word of his Father from heaven and is taken by the Spirit into the wilderness. So before he begins his public ministry of liberation, he has to, he has to contend with temptation. And there in the wilderness, he's tempted in his appetites as a human being. We, of course, know because we've been able to lift the lid on Revelation. We know that this man is both son of God and son of man. But in his humanity, he is tested and tempted in precisely the same way that you and I are. He has all of the human tendencies that you have and that I have, and yet he's able to resist them. He steps into the, into the desert. He's confronted by the enemy of each one of us, and the enemy of each one of us tempts him in relation to his human appetites. Turn these stones into bread. He's tempted in relation to his need for human affirmation. Jump off the temple and have the crowds affirm you and gather around you and acclaim you as a mighty leader. And in terms of his natural human ambition, God, when he created humanity, told them to be fruitful and to rule. And so the desires of ambition in the hearts of every human being are not wrong but right. It's just how you exercise these things that's important. And so Jesus has in his humanity the desire to do well and to succeed. And the devil says, if you'll only worship me, I'll give you all of your ambitions and they will be fulfilled in your life. Every nation, every people group in the world will bow to you as long as you bow to me. Jesus comes out of the wilderness in Luke chapter 4 and he's full of the power of the Spirit. He's He's gone into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he comes out of the wilderness full of the power of the Spirit. And he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and he declares the manifesto of liberation for the people of Israel. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to you. Freedom for the prisoners and liberation for the oppressed. His own people know that this is the little boy that grew up in their midst and find it difficult to make the transition from Jesus the boy to Jesus the liberator. And so Jesus goes and finds a following in another town called Capernaum. And the crowds gather and the momentum builds and the people want him to be the king. Another man, not called the son of God, but called daddy's boy. 
daddy's boy, Barabbas. Daddy's boy, he, he's tempted as well with the same temptations, the same temptations that beset Jesus, that beset us all. He sees the grinding poverty of his people. He sees the economic oppression of this brutal empire. He sees how it's denuded his wealth and his financial status. Perhaps his father has lost so much as so many did under the unkind and unjust hand of the economic system that caused the conquered people to pay for their conquest through taxation. And his appetite, of course, for more and not less is tempted and he says we should have more and not less. I should have more and not less. You should have more and not less. And his natural God-given desire for approval is tested and tempted in the face of people who don't only hate him, they disdain him. They don't even want to be in what they call Palestine, a word that would catch in the craw of every faithful Jew. Because this is not the land of the Philistines. This is the land of God, given to the people of Israel. A covenant that is binding for always. And this disdain, this, this belittling of him and his people and his history and his nation causes something to rise up in him. This is not right. We need to, we need to do the things that the, that the Maccabee brothers did a few generations ago. We need to overthrow this oppression and his ambition is piqued. Because the son of the father is looked upon by everyone as the leader of men. And so he begins his, his declaration of his manifesto. And the manifesto is this. We must overthrow the oppressive rule of Rome. We must cast down the taxation that, that impoverishes, that causes us to live in penury. We have to cast off the shackles of slavery. We must overthrow the wicked, brutal oppression of Rome. And in time, he gains a following. It's no good being an insurrectionist if you just declare the insurrection by yourself. 
And so he, he builds a following. He develops a strategy. Some of the zealots will join him. Some of the iscare will join him. Maybe he knows that there are members of those groups in the closest associates of Jesus. Simon the zealot. Judas Iscariot. Maybe, maybe word is passed to them. Was that, a, was that an underlying thought in the cause of Judas? Who knows? But as Jesus is building momentum through the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead and the lifting of the broken, the Son of the Father is gaining momentum with his message of economic and political freedom. And so they come to Jerusalem. And the disciples of Jesus take the fronds from the palm trees and remove the cloaks from their backs and they place them on the road for the donkey that Jesus is riding on. And they call out, God is saving us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And some remember the ancient prophecies that speak of a king riding on a donkey. And they gather and they, they strain to listen in the portico of Solomon as Jesus teaches daily in the temple courts. And they hear of the amazing stories of redemption and of healing and of the kingdom breaking in. And the people want Jesus to be king. And maybe at a similar time, this group that are following the Son of the Father make their way to Jerusalem. And not in the bright light of day, but under the cover of darkness, they approach the guards at Fort Antonio. They, they look for the instruments of Roman rule and power expressed within the holy city, which is a scourge on the soul of every faithful Jew. And they seek to deploy a fifth column within the city, armed with their secret daggers. And at the right moment, in the cover of darkness on the right day, at the word of the Son of the Father, the rebellion begins. The insurrection is initiated. And Romans die. But perhaps there's just not enough of them. Perhaps their insurrection 
is unable to gain momentum because there's fear in the populace because they've seen what it is that happens when people rebel against Rome. Terrible things. Institutionalized terrorism is the principal instrument of, of, of control that the Romans use. And so they try as hard as they can, but the momentum just isn't there. And before long, the overwhelming power, the insurmountable numbers, the overwhelming odds defeat them. Many die. Many are caught looting and stealing as well as hurting and killing. And those that are not dealt with summarily by the Roman legions who had free hand in these things are captured and taken to the fortress. And in that same fortress, Jesus is held. He's returned from Herod and, and this wheedling attempt at undermining him by Herod and his soldiers as they dress him in royal robes and mock him. And the soldiers add to the demeaning of Jesus by blindfolding him and using the oldest form of torture known to man, they hit him whilst he's blindfolded so he's unable to prepare himself for the blows. And then they bring him before Pilate again. Languishing in the dungeon is a man who has rebelled against the powers of Rome. Standing in a royal robe is a man who has defeated the powers of darkness at every turn. John tells us of the private conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Because you have to come with some explanation for what it was that Pilate did next. Because although he surrendered Jesus into the hands of the religious elite, he said, I want this sign placed above his head in every language that is spoken in Jerusalem, in Aramaic and Greek and Latin, write, the king of the Jews. In their private conversation, Pilate, who had already indicated that his own philosophical struggle was the struggle of whether there really is any truth at all, asks Jesus whether he is a king. 
And Jesus says, I was born for this. And this is how my kingdom is going to be revealed. And so there's a journey of a rebel and a redeemer. There's a journey of an enemy and a reconciler that begins in temptation, that continues in a declaration, a manifesto of freedom, that moves on to gain momentum with crowds and with support and with following. And all the time, those two paths, that, that journey taken by these two men inexorably leads to the overshadowing presence of a cross. And one man dies and the other goes free. And you say, well, that's an interesting way to take it, Mike. What's it got to do with me? Paul, the man who perhaps Luke is writing on behalf of, in his letter to Romans, says this, in chapter 5, verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Out of the two, Son of God, the Son of the Father, which one is the ungodly one? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did Barabbas change in the prison? Did Barabbas mend his ways there as he stood condemned to death in chains? Did he regret some of his actions? Probably most people do. Did he wish he hadn't got caught? Definitely. Did he do anything to convince Jesus that he was worthy of the substitution? For if 
When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Listen carefully. Without God, you are a rebel. Without God, you are his enemy. And you say, wait a minute. There's lots of people who are born who don't know God, obviously. I mean, everybody. And, and you're telling me that, that just because they don't know God, they're his enemy? There's, there's nothing in them that's, that's specifically rebelling against God? What, what are you saying? I'm saying this. That in 1812, if you were born in America, you were an enemy of Britain. And if you were born in Britain, you were an enemy of America. Americans, get it? You can be born in enemy territory. And that makes you an enemy. It may not make you an active enemy, but you are an enemy all the same. We are born in rebellion. There is a, there is a rebel, a rebel leader who holds the territory in which you were born. And he's called the devil. And whether you like it or I like it, that's where we live if we don't know God. And as rebels, Jesus comes and says, your penalty for being a rebel, for being involved and inciting insurrection against the right and true ruler of your life. The penalty is death. And I'm the judge. There's no need for a jury because I'm a perfect judge. I'm the judge. And I say, rebellion and being an enemy of God means that you deserve death. And what the judge does is to get down from the judge's bench and say, and I'll die in your place. Isn't that incredible? In the Bible it's called too good to be true news. It's unbelievable. But it's true. It's good news. Barabbas, he didn't do anything. And he went free. Barabbas, he didn't change his ways. He went free. Barabbas, he, he, didn't, he didn't 
know what to do. But freedom was conferred upon him. Forgiveness was given to him as a gift. There was nothing in him that he could offer by way of trade. But the Son of God set Barabbas free. And so I ask you today, whether you've been saved because you've come to a recognition of this, and a surrender to God's will in your life, or because today you've heard this afresh and you've perhaps feel as though you've never heard it before. I say to you, are you living in the gift that Jesus has given you? Because it's a costly gift. And so often, the incredible value of this gift is not understood by us. And so we fail to embrace it. We fail to rejoice in it. We fail to recognize the gravity of our condition without God and our incredible joy that should be ours having received this amazing gift. Jesus says this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to you who are poor in spirit and have no hope. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for you who are prisoners to religion, to performance, to the expectations of your parents and your friends and your culture. You are prisoners. And I've come to set you free. I've come to give you recovery of sight Because you're blind. You hear these words time and again. And you do not see the world differently. You see it the way you've always seen it. But there's another way of seeing it. A way of seeing it through the gift that I've given you. Which means that you're liberated. Which means that the world is now an entirely different place. The world is not dominated by darkness. The world is overrun by the light of the living God shining into your heart and through your life to transform the lives of others. No longer does darkness define things. Now the light of the living God that shines in your heart defines your life and the lives of those around you. And you don't see it. And so I've come to open your blind eyes. And I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is not something you deserve. It's not something you can earn. 
it's something that's already been given. And so what of you, friend, today? Who woke up worrying? Who have spent your days agonizing over the future of this or the possibility of that? What of you, dear friend, who has no peace at the moment because the world's chaos has swept you away? What about you, dear Christian brother or sister, who find yourself trapped in the same patterns of behavior that were there before you recognized Jesus as Savior? and still persist to this day, unremitting, unchanged. What about you, dear Christian friend, whose mind is full of anxious thoughts, is constantly swept away by fear that you rebrand as responsibility for your children, or stewardship in your work, or concern for the nation when actually Jesus addresses it simply as worry are you free today is the price that Jesus paid is it something is it something that's manifest today is the value of the gift seen last week we talked about being a friend of Jesus and uh, lots of you have, have kind of been turning that around and thinking that through and living that out today I'm asking for you who know that there's a little strand of captivity that today could be cut and you could know that measure of freedom that you've been looking for. I'm asking you to respond today. I don't care what the captivity is. Jesus paid for the freedom of all of it. Captivity to the mind, to behavior, to past people, to present circumstances, whatever it is, the strand of slavery that holds you captive today, as the word of God is declared over you, can be severed. Simply because you say you don't want it anymore. It may be that tomorrow you have to say the same thing and it may be the day after that you have to say the same thing. But in time, captivity will grow. The kingdom, like a mustard seed, almost invisible at the beginning, will, will root and eventually bear fruit in your life. So why don't you declare it today? Whatever the freedom is that you need, why don't you declare it today?
right now, if you know that today is the day of salvation, that today is a day of freedom, that today the words of Jesus in his manifesto spoken over you and me is a day when the strands of captivity are severed by the word of God. And if, as you've heard the word of God, it's produced faith in your heart, then you stand right now with me as I pray for you. Bless you, brother. If you're at home online, stand up too. If you're driving, don't stand up. Just stay standing where you are. I want you to just stay standing as I pray for you. Because I want you to allow what it is that the Spirit wants to do today to be ingrained in fresh behavior. Because what we're doing right now is what we spoke about some weeks ago when we said that we have divine power to bring down strongholds, to destroy arguments and pretensions and take captive every thought and bring it in submission to Jesus. Whatever it is that has held you, you cannot defeat it, but Jesus can. And he's demonstrated it because he's died for it. And right now is the day of freedom. And so take this thing, whatever that strand, whatever that strand of slavery, whatever that strand that indicated to you that you were not completely free, whatever it is, give it a name and in your heart right now, give it to Jesus at home, in-house. Give it to Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, we give to you the things that hold us captive and we bring them to you, Lord, and say we can't do anything about them. And so we say, Lord, take captive the things that hold us captive. And Jesus, we thank you that on the cross you declared our freedom. You established our salvation. And there on the cross, Lord, you paid the penalty You paid every price that could or should be paid so that we can go free. And Lord, as rebels imprisoned by our captivities, we thank you that we don't have to share the cross because you took the cross for us. And we thank you, Lord, that at just the right time, you came for us. And though we were enemies, you've made us friends. We bless you, Jesus. We bless you, Jesus. And all God's people say,